Amen. Turn, please, to the book of Philippians. It's been a while since we've been in Philippians, so here we come back again and continue our verse-by-verse exposition through the book of Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter 2. You have an outline. If you have a bulletin, you have an outline. Outline will help you. It just uh, kind of directs you as we make our way through the passage. Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to be in a, a large block of Scripture today. We can do that because of the way that it's written. Different Scriptures are written in, in different ways. Some are, are highly doctrinal. Some are practical. Some are historical. Uh, some are apocalyptic, as we'll see tonight. But um, this particular passage is very personal. It's the Apostle Paul uh, actually giving four examples of faithfulness. And humbly, and, and it really is humbly, he uses himself as an example. And he uses the Philippians as an example. And he uses um, Timothy as an example of faithfulness. And then Epaphrodites, who uh, is, well, we'll talk about who he is in a minute. So uh, let's read the passage together. And then we'll make a quick little exegetical journey through it. And then we'll come to the bulk of our message. Philippians chapter 2. Let's start reading. Let's go back to verse 14 that we've already dealt with. <clears throat> 2.14. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Well, things haven't changed a whole lot, have they? Wicked and perverse generation. Um, it comes right into our living rooms if you watch the evening news or if you watch any production from Hollywood. It comes right into your living room. A wicked, a crooked, and perverse generation. Holding fast the word of life so I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I've not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I may also be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Yet I consider it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my fellow brother, or sorry, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard he was sick, for indeed he was sick almost to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his own life. In other words, he was willing to risk his own life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. And risking his own life, it was very true. Travel in those days was very dangerous. And sickness, very deadly. 
And uh, he faced them both, and the Lord was gracious to him. Well, just a few exegetical observations. I'll touch on them quickly. You have them there on your outline. The day of Christ, uh, we could also say the day of judgment, because we know all judgments have been given to the Son in verse 16. Verse 17, I'm glad and rejoice with you. Um, it, this is just kind of cool, I thought, as I, look, as I read it in the Greek. There's no good way in English to say this. Um, it would be clunky, but I like clunky sometimes. This was pretty good, I thought. I rejoice and co-rejoice with you, because it's really using the same root word for both. So it doesn't look like it, glad and rejoice. Okay, well, those are both synonyms. And you be glad and rejoice with me. You rejoice and I co-rejoice with you. And that comes from Cairo, joy or rejoice. It's also, interestingly enough, a common way to say goodbye in Greek. Cairo, you know, and uh, to rejoice. So it's a key word in the Philippians, and we find it elsewhere in the book as it shows there. Verse 20, like-minded, of the same mind, one who thinks the same way. Verse 25, Fellow worker or fellow soldier, this was pretty cool too, I thought. Co-laborer, having to do with effort. And then a co-soldier or co-warrior, having to do with courage. And then verse 28, I sent him. And that's where we get the word apostle from, apostolos. Uh, he was an apostle with a small a, um, may have been a minister, or may have just been commissioned for a job. But he did his job, did what he was supposed to do. High praise for Epaphroditus, indeed. Okay, so, starting in verse 16, then. The example of the Apostle Paul. What would bring Paul great joy? Paul is literally saying, I rejoice and co-rejoice with you, and you should rejoice and co-rejoice with me. What would that co-rejoicing look like? What would it be? Well, number one, he loved them. He cared about them, and this strikes to the motivation of why a minister does what he does. Okay. Why does a minister do what he does? Does he do it for a paycheck? Some do. Some do. In Bible days, some did. Well, why does a true gospel minister do what he does? Why does he work with the souls of men and women why do we labor to see them do well spiritually? Well, it's discouraging to pour your life into someone and see them go astray. That happens. It's encouraging to see a young one grow up and follow in the ways of the Lord. That's greatly encouraging. And it's especially encouraging when you see one of the sheep mature and take on a leadership position, or maybe even begin themselves to minister to the needs of others, or even themselves be, become a minister, a pastor. You know, Paul's maximum joy would be for them, the Philippians, to run their Christian life in such a way, run that Christian race is what I should say, in such a way that he would know that he hasn't labored in vain. You can see that right from the very text. And how will he know if he's done his job properly? If success is to be found, it's going to be found in the day of Christ. Success will be revealed at the end. 
it would be the great judgment of the great day where Paul would stand and where the Philippians would stand, and they'd be the true measure of Paul's ministry amongst them. Paul was not going to compromise the gospel because he knew that he would be at the great judgment of the great day, and he was accountable for the way that he fulfilled his minister, ministry. Now, every true gospel minister wants success. And, um, you know, and let's face it, we like to see the pews filled. You guys have disappointed me over here. You guys have done well. <laughs> uh, all kidding aside, you know. We, we do not judge success by numbers. We judge success by faithfulness. And when numbers become the measure of success, then all kinds of problems arise. You know, very few are going to be angry with you if you only talk about faith. We, we need to talk about faith, absolutely. But even the lost will sometimes commend you if you talk about faith. They say, well, that's a, that's a man of faith. That, that's a, a woman who believes. I, I can admire that. Maybe I don't believe, but I can admire the fact that they do. And if you want to avoid the ire of men, only talk about faith. Just talk about faith all the time. That's all. But what about repentance? Interestingly enough, today, our catechism talked about faith and repentance, did it not? And we do need both. But the message of repentance is not a popular one. The reaction that you get, who do you think you are? You know? Do you think you're better than me? Do you think you're better than everybody else? Who are you to judge me? Or, hey, my morality system is just as good as yours. Who's to say yours is better? Very common, you know. It's no longer debated, just by way of illustration, not from the text, but it's no longer debated by people who believe in science, if I can use science that way that the baby in the womb is, is really alive. Can't be denied. Take a sonogram. It's moving around. It's alive. You know, very much so. And anyone who denies that in the second or third trimester especially, well, there'd just be a sonogram denier, I guess. That's what you'd have to say. You know? Well, we have technology to look into the womb and see in very sharp images what people never saw before. You look and you say, that's my baby. And you're right. It's your baby. And baby's born prematurely as early as 22 weeks have a good chance of survival because of today's medical advances. And 23 weeks, so much better. 24 weeks, so much better. I had a child born at 25 weeks, but that was almost 40 years ago. Not such a good survival rate back then. That's in God's providence too. But viability is not the issue. The issue is life. Life is the issue. And I just have to bring this up today uh, because the news is, is just proliferated with talk of abortion, with abortion protests, with marches in favor of abortion, and it's being called a right. And no matter what they tell you, abortion is plain and simple murder. It's taking of a life. The definition of murder. You know. And, and you know, that's a difficult thing 
to preach. It is. Um, I'll, I'll tell you one reason it's a difficult thing to preach. Because there are many fine Christian ladies today who've had abortions in the past. They bought in to what society was telling them. You know, well, well let me just say this. You know, if that be the case here, there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And you can trust him and you can look to him and you can be glad. You can be glad of what God has done for you. You know, uh, so really, you know, you're going to hear all kinds of arguments if you haven't already heard them. Um, one that's been really trumpeted around is, well, ab abortion is a good thing because it's so much safer than childbirth. Abortion's simple. Women die in childbirth. You know, and it's become a popular trend for ladies to come out and openly talk about and celebrate their abortions. Wicked and perverse generation. It's nothing new. It's nothing new at all. And I'm sure many of the Canaanites in that day were very, very pleased at the offerings that they gave to Molech and Baal. Millions of children died in the fires. And how many millions have died in America? And how many more millions have died around the world? You just have to face these facts. It's a political issue. Shouldn't be. It's a political issue. Roe v. Wade made it political. Now it's political. Okay. But really it's moral. And really it's a matter of right and wrong. Because the values of today do not impress God. Well, I'll go on from there. But I just had to say that because it's really just all over the place. Marches, protests, all kinds of things being said. And, um, and they've got very attractive and, and nice, well-groomed looking ladies that are pro-abortion and just talking about it. And you'll see them all over the news. Well, the Apostle Paul, back to the text, back to the text. The Apostle Paul was literally facing the imminent possibility of martyrdom. And if there's one thing that comes through the book of Philippians over and over, is that he was facing martyrdom. He was in prison, and he may die. But what does he say? He says, I trust to see you again. He said, but if not, this is what I want for you. That's how he faces it. And Paul humbly compares his death to an Old Testament drink offering. That's the illusion that's, that's being made here in verse 17, uh, the drink offering. One of the, the, the offering that I believe he's thinking about, most scholars believe that he's thinking about, is uh, when they would slay the lamb, they would then pour the wine on the lamb, and then they would um, burn the lamb as a sacrifice, a burnt offering, and that would be a pleasing aroma. The wine would help to make it even a more pleasing aroma. Okay. So that's the, that's the imagery that's being used here. He says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. I'm not the main sacrifice. I'm not the, the big thing, you know. I'm just a little addition here that God is using for his glory. And Paul's in jail, facing death. The Philippians are free. They can preach the gospel. 
And Paul rejoices because the word of God is going forth, and he rejoices because he believes the Philippians themselves would be willing to suffer and will be willing to suffer if God so wills. And that brings us to the Philippians in verses 17 and 18. Uh, verse 18 says, For the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me, as he talks about his labors for them. And, and Paul is showing by implication here uh, the priesthood of the believers. In the Old Testament, there was only one tribe that could be a, a priest. The high priest had to come from the tribe of Levi. But you know the Lord Jesus Christ didn't come from Levi, right? He, he would come from, from Judah. And the Melchizedek was the, the priestly situation. So, so we have that going on. But in the New Testament, all of God's children are priests. All of God's children are priests. 1 Peter 2.5 says, A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And that's what the Philippians were doing by faith. Paul says, your faith. The Philippians in this illustration are Paul's, uh, Paul are the priests. And their faith is the sacrifice. And we could even say Paul is making his lifeblood the drink offering that accompanies the sacrifice of the Philippians. Presents your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, or, or you might say your spiritual worship. Paul is not the sacrificer. Paul is not the sacrifice. Paul compares himself to the drink offering that accompanies the Old Testament sacrifice. The main event was the lamb. And in context, the main event is the faith of the Philippians, but in reality, it's the lamb of God who made it so the Philippians would have faith and salvation. Their trust in the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now we move to Timothy. We move to Timothy in verses 19 through 24. Let me read them again. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. He's going to send him, and he's going to come back. He's going to give a report. You know, we have, uh, you could talk to somebody around the world. You could talk to somebody in China today if they didn't block your message, which they probably would. But uh, you can talk to people around the world almost instantly. It surely wasn't like that. In, in this day. Travel was difficult and communication was hard. But he's going to send Timothy that, he may, that I may be encouraged when I know your state, for I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus, but you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me, but I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Paul's purpose in mentioning Timothy. Paul's sending this letter by the hand of Epaphroditus, a different man. Timothy's not going yet. You know. uh, they're not going to wait for the results of the trial for Epaphroditus to go back to, to Philippi. But it would appear they were going to wait for the results of the trial before sending Timothy. As soon as the trial settled, Timothy will come, report to them the good news of the trial, and it'll be good news either way it goes. Paul's with the Lord, or Paul's free, you know. So, uh, you know, he's hoping to be freed, according to verse 24. I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. That's what he was hoping by faith. He was prepared to die, though, for his faith, 
verse 17. And if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. He says twice, I trust in the Lord. He says twice, I trust in the Lord, 19, verse 23. Facing death, that's exactly what he should do. This is what he will do. And he will find the results of what God wills. Paul is doing something here. And we're talking about Timothy, but Paul, like us, lived in the revealed will of God. And that's what you have to do. We have to live in the circumstances and in the revealed will of God as it plays out in our own lives. Of course, we need to be responsible. We need to do the right things, you know. Paul didn't know the future, didn't know what was going to happen to him for sure. Although at times he did know, by special prophecy, what was going to happen. But Paul lived for God in the midst of his circumstances. And Paul realized his circumstances are changeable. And I think that's something we all need to realize, too. Sometimes we get into really trouble, difficulties, maybe not even our own, of our own making. They just happen. They're going to come upon us because it's a world of difficulty. Circumstances are changeable. God can change them. God can turn them around like that and make them to be something very, very different. But if he doesn't, you can trust God anyway in the midst of your circumstances. Paul lived for God in the midst of his circumstances in the middle of a jail cell in Rome. His unwavering faith in the sovereignty of God and the purposes of God are evident. And then he says that I also may be encouraged. Timothy would report back to Paul, harkens back to verse 27 of chapter 1. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's 127. And then Paul's character reference for Timothy. Timothy is an example of faithfulness. You know. His heart is seen in verse 20. He was of one mind with the Apostle Paul. He was as dependable a fellow minister as Paul had. There were other ministers who ministered for wrong reasons. Um, let's just go look back at that. Chapter 1, uh, verse um, 15. Chapter 1, verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition and not sincerely. And then Paul adds, supposing to add affliction to my chains. So we see, as we said just a few moments ago, it is possible to preach for the wrong reasons. And we talked about that passage already, so I won't uh, belabor that or go over that again. Verse 21 and 22, his goal and proven character. His goal, verse 22, or 21, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ. But you know, okay, he's the exact opposite of that. You know his proven character. And then here's the tenderness of it all. That as a son, you know, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. You know Timothy wasn't his real son. It wasn't his physical son. He was his son in the Lord. And, you know, that's, that's a wonderful thing. 
when you can have a son in the Lord and, and you can work with them and you watch them grow and then you, you see them go off and do what the Lord would have them to do. It, it's an exciting thing. You, know? you love to see that happen. Paul loved to see that happen. You know? So, you know, and that's not just true for ministers. That's true for others that, that move away or go to other places, you know. Uh, you hate to see them go. You hate to see them leave. But you hope that they'll take with them the things that they've learned. And they'll minister in the places that they go. And be a blessing to the new churches to which they enter. That's what the kingdom is all about, you know. It's not just about um, making a little kingdom for ourselves, you know. It's seeing the kingdom expand and grow and Jesus Christ be glorified. So Paul wants to make sure that the Philippians would receive Timothy just as though he were Paul himself, you know. And they'd give Timothy, that young man, the respect that they would give Paul if he was there. And then regarding his character, like I said, like a son, and every good father is proud of his son. You know, you're so glad to see your son do well. And you, I, I think, probably almost every father wants to see their son do better than they have done. And to, to rise above, you know. Well, Timothy, Paul, they're both bondservants. Chapter 1, verse 1. You know, don't need to read it, but chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now let's just finish up, uh, and then some applications at the end, with Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, verse 25. Let's talk about this guy that we don't know a whole lot about except what little bit we read here. Epaphroditus. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and the one who ministered to my need. And so we can see right there that he was sent for a reason, probably with a love gift for the Apostle Paul. Uh, when you're in a Roman prison, um, you, you need someone to help you. They're not going to help you a whole lot. And so the Philippians, we know from chapter 4, uh, ministered to Paul and then ministered to him again. And Epaphroditus was the one that, that carried uh, that physical treasure to Paul. And then the spiritual treasure of letting him know how the Philippians were doing and things are going well in the church and and um, Paul was encouraged by that. Verse 26, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? He got sick, he almost died, and he was worried about the Philippians worrying about him. <laughs> Which is pretty cool, but that just shows a heart of love, shows a heart of care that he had. For indeed he was sick, almost to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And, and you know, it's an amazing thing as you read. Uh, how many people did the Apostle Paul heal? Well, we have no idea, but probably in the hundreds, you know, probably in the hundreds during his ministry. There were places where they would even take a, uh, he, just his shadow would fall on some. And by God's marvelous grace, they'd be healed. But Paul wasn't able to heal Epaphroditus. And Paul wasn't able to heal himself. And why would that be? Well, no doubt Epaphroditus lacked faith. If he had enough faith. No. <laughs> no, of course not. You know. And the Apostle Paul didn't lack faith. 
but it's because there is no such thing as a faith healer. Healing comes from God. And so we pray to God. And we seek God. And nobody's going to be healed forever. See, Christian, Christian science gets that wrong. Oh, you'll never die. And then the lady that starts it dies. Well, you know, maybe she just thinks she's dead. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. No, nobody's going to live forever. We're not designed to live forever like this. Be glad you're not designed to live forever like this. We are designed to live forever. But we'll live forever in a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness, brothers and sisters. And that's the great hope that we have. And, uh, you know, we'll enjoy heaven. You know, there's, there's just, in some way, words fail us. Uh, we sang a hymn that reminded me of that this morning. Words fail us of what it's going to be like in the forever and ever and ever. Almost can't even talk about time and the forever and ever and ever. And then um, uh, Newton tried to, to say it and say it well. He said, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining is the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. No less days. We haven't even ticked one off the calendar 10,000 years from now. Well, that's a good way to think of it. Uh, in the church I grew up in, we used to sing, when we've been there forevermore, bright shining is the sun. Okay, that's true too, but you know, to put 10,000 days or 10,000 years in there gives us some kind of a context that we haven't even ticked off a second of the time that we'll have in eternity. Helps us to think today the way that, uh, will be, that uh, things will be then. So Epaphroditus, Anselm said he had common sympathy with Paul. He had common work with Paul, and he suffered common danger with Paul. And he may have been one of their pastors, probably was, we don't know that for sure, but uh, well could be that he was one of their pastors. If he wasn't one of their pastors, he might have been a deacon, or he might have just been one that was commissioned to do a job, one that was given this specific commission that he fulfilled. And we already talked about the, his illness, and so his service, it's time to go back home. You know, the Philippians, you know, well, the Philippians would be glad to see him. The Philippians would be glad to hear a report about the Apostle Paul. But they were to receive him back with gladness and hold him in high esteem because he met at the lack of service that you could not give to me. And that's, not an insult. They weren't there. But they helped him to get there and to do something. And when we support missionaries, and we will um, have a mission offering at the end of this month, when we support missionaries, uh, we aren't going to the various places like Montenegro and other places like that. We aren't going. But we can help and have helped them to go. And so it, it's kind of like the same idea. And that's good. There has to be, you know, they talk about holding the ropes. Somebody has to hold the ropes so that others can go. And it takes a lot of rope holders for one person to go. But that's what we do. Applications. Applications to each of us. Do we have a true heart of love for the people of God and for the gospel? Just like Paul did, just like Timothy did, 
like the Philippians did, like Epaphroditus did. Paul loved the souls of men, but Paul was not willing to compromise in order to become popular. In fact, Paul wasn't very popular. We still talk about him today. We still love him today. He's the doctor of the church. He's the theologian of the church. The great apostle Paul. The great apostle Paul, as he comes to the end of his life, hardly has anybody that appears to care for him. He's pretty much alone with just a few. He mentions a few in 2 Timothy. He mentions a few. And there were those that loved him and those that cared. You know, they, they were. But um, he had a lot of enemies. He had, a lot, he had a lot of opponents. He had a lot of slanderers that sought to bring him down. But he loved the gospel, and he loved his fellow countrymen, even those that were persecuting him. He even dares to say, and, and I believe he really meant it, I'd be willing to be accursed if that would bring them salvation. That's the kind of love he had. But, uh, of course, we can't do that. He couldn't do that. Well, regarding the church in Philippi that he's writing to, he loved them and was willing to do whatever was necessary for their edification and growth. And second of all, do we have a heart to obey the gospel like the Philippians did? Do you and I, and ask yourself this, do you have a heart to obey gladly from the heart the things that God says, the instructions that we have from him? Do we heed the wise warnings and if someone comes to us with a wise warning, do we get offended and bent out of shape? And do we take the place of, who are you to tell me what to do? We need to examine our hearts. And Timothy, you know, once in a while, and I'm glad to do this, by the way, people ask me to write a letter of recommendation for a job or or college, or, or whatever it happens to be, and, and yeah, ask, please. Glad to do that. Glad to do it, you know. Um, and, and you know, try to be truthful, but if I'm going to slander you, I'm going to tell you no. <laughs> not not going to write that letter, but, you know, if I'm going to write a letter, it's going to be a good letter, I promise you that, you know. Are we the kind of person, though, who could be counted faithful? Could we truly have a recommendation like Timothy got from Paul, said about us, a glowing one, and most importantly, that he trusted the Lord. And then Epaphroditus. Can we be counted on to do whatever is necessary? Epaphroditus would have ministered in absolute obscurity if it wasn't for this particular passage where we learn a little bit about him. A little bit more than just his name. We learn a little bit more about him. Believe me, uh, most of us will live our lives in obscurity. Most of us will be forgotten. My wife and I drove by the, the cemetery that we drive by all the time. Because it's on G Street, just like uh, we're on G Street. And we use G Street to get to where we're going, to Costco, or where we happen to go. And you always pass the cemetery. It's really stark when you pass that cemetery. Because... Um, at the very beginning of it is the old cemetery. And it's got the headstones and all those things that are, truthfully, in some ways, kind of creepy. But, uh, you know, they, they, they're there. But you can tell 
no one's visiting. And my wife went out, well, you know what? No one's visiting there. I wonder, well, we know why. Because the people that knew them and the people that knew them that knew them probably have all passed away too. We're talking about the 1800s or some of those things. So they've got a stone there, but it's obscure, relative obscurity. If the Lord doesn't return, that's going to happen to us too. And we might be remembered somewhat. Somebody might be digging through a genealogy someday and say, oh, I wonder, I wonder what his life was like. Now with the internet, maybe you can find out a little bit more than what you used to be able to find out. Okay. And then you go to the newer part of the cemetery, and you know why they do this. I mean, the headstones are, are right built into the ground. So you can drive the mower right over, and it's a lot easier to maintain and take care of it. That's the practical reason why it's done, of course. But you see more flowers, you see more care, because the people are still being remembered. Okay, Well, that's just a practical observation there. But you know, it doesn't really matter in the ultimate if we're remembered on this earth or not. What's important is that God remembers us and that we're with God. And for all eternity, if you're in Christ Jesus the Lord, you will be with God. So can we do whatever is necessary for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christ? Some are not even willing to be a little bit inconvenienced for the sake of Christ. Paul and, and thousands and maybe millions of others have been willing to be imprisoned and even killed for the sake of Christ. I think just this morning, you know, the book you ladies are reading, which I'll admit I haven't read, but I was looking at it a little bit, you know, I thought, it's incredible. In the year 2020, 2022, there we go. In the year 2022, there are people that are dying for their faith. It's almost unthinkable. How could it be? How could the world be so cruel that they would kill God's children? Well, it's been going on. It's been going on for 2,000 years. And we can rest assured from the book of Revelation, it's going to continue to go on until the Lord returns. For the forces of evil and the forces of darkness hate the gospel. But I'll tell you this, they can't overcome the Lord. And they can't overcome the Lord's providence. And they can't overcome what the Lord would have for his children. And so you can trust him. Paul trusted him. And you can trust him too no matter what befalls. May God help us to give our lives, to even be willing to be poured out like a drink offering. May God help us to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for your son. Your son came with a purpose and on purpose to die for the sins of your children. You shall call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Lord, as much as the thought of our Lord dying may cause a tear to well up, we also know it's the greatest thing that's ever been done. It's redeemed men and women for all eternity. 
has done for us what we never could have done for ourselves. And only by faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is there eternal life. We thank you for the Son of God who left the glories of heaven and came to earth on purpose and with a purpose, as we said. So Lord, cause us to glorify him, cause us to praise his name, cause us to look to him, and in a world where a thousand voices clamor to be heard, may we hear his voice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.